Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. If you were an author, a writer, and what do you have in front of you? A blank piece of paper. And then you have to say something. But in front of you, staring at you, is this blankness. And in musical terms, silence is the same thing. That is your canvas, silence. And it's what you do over that silence. You don't want to obliterate it, you want, because uh, it can also, you can use it because it becomes like the depth. But somewhere you've got to make some noise over that silence. That quote is from the coda of the long 20th century. It is Keith Richards in a BBC culture show special. The year is 2010, and the notion of a physical output resulting from the interaction of essentially spiritual acts of creativity with empty space may seem a little arcane. Yet, when we hear one of the Rolling Stones put it so simply, we feel like it is something we already knew and merely recognized better through his statement. And the fact of the matter is, our culture has, over the past century, come to incorporate this outlook, even as it's happened more or less unconsciously. On or about December 1910, human character changed. The Victorian cook lived like a leviathan in the lower depths, formidable, silent, obscure, inscrutable. The Georgian cook is a creature of sunshine and fresh air. In and out of the drawing room, now to borrow the Daily Herald, now to ask advice about a hat. All human relations have shifted. Those between masters and servants, husbands and wives, parents and children. And when human relations change, there is at the same time a change in religion, conduct, politics, and literature. To the list we may add architecture. Virginia Woolf's famous 1924 lecture, Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown, from which the aforesaid quotation is taken, describes the end of the long 19th century. We see that the character of a cook, once fixed to a proscribed realm of production, is now defined by his allowed transgressions, by interaction with what he is not. Wolf was describing how our orientation to characters in life, and therefore to historic and contemporary fiction, had decisively altered. The way in which the cook's role is now described by how he interacts with the canvas of the world around him, rather than by inward definition, is part of the same shift in perspective that sees silence as a new performative dimension. We contend that the substance of this change in orientation has much to do with the by-now instinctual understanding of empty space that Keith Richards evinced in his remark on the creative process. Music, literature, and architecture are no longer the byproducts of assembled elements, defined by relations that might be described in terms of a Pythagorean sense of harmonic or discordant ratios amongst themselves. In this new, shifted perception, the counterpoint is ontological. 
That is to say, it is being played out between being and non-being. No longer merely a canvas, silence adds and becomes depth. Richard sees the void as a landscape for creativity. Wolf observes how it had changed perceptions of and relationships between people. And when Loos first publicly read Ornament and Crime in 1910, the shedding of ornament, that most salient of assemblages, was described as a symptom of human evolution, a measure of renewed health and vitality. A new form of human awareness could surface from the dregs of the decorative drive. We must, however, remember that Loos did not single out applied ornament as either essentially evil or unwaveringly wrong. He compared it to cannibalism in that it is adequate where it belongs and criminal where it does not. His invective cuts deeper and closer to home when he describes what he feels is ornament's nature. The first ornament that was born, the cross, was erotic in origin. The first work of art, the first artistic act which the first artist in order to rid himself of his surplus energy smeared on the wall. A horizontal dash. The prone woman. A vertical dash. The man penetrating her. The man who created it felt the same urge as Beethoven. He was in the same heaven in which Beethoven created the Ninth Symphony. The Church does not own the cross. The Christian cross is, rather, the acculturation of an earlier, perhaps vestigial, symbol. Los knowingly strips a cherished Christian referent of its familiar connotations and reminds us of the basic drives that underpin all human action, and particularly all creative acts. He observed that creativity kept pace with a culture's development and that because of this tandem progression, the expressions that were proper to one age would be misplaced in another. And though he revels in Lombrosian analogies to criminality and mental illness, his main point is about outgrowing something, which is why persisting in a prior mode of ornamentation is akin to a modern woodsman using a stone axe. The collection of dated ornaments in what was becoming an increasingly well-documented global archive had eradicated a sort of artistic amnesia that other periods had benefited from. If there is truly nothing new under the sun, then how much novelty is simply ignorance? In his world of encyclopedias and public museums, Loos asked, are we alone, the people of the 19th century, supposed to be unable to do what any Negro, all the races in periods before us, have been able to do? What mankind created without ornament in earlier millennia was thrown away without a thought and abandoned to destruction. With an eye cast to a frequently ignored facet of historiography, Los reminds us that all history has an inherent bias and that previous cultures everywhere had already created works without ornamentation. It was the contemporary European 
that antiquarian who was so stubbornly obsessed with collecting and preserving all things decorated. And it is this fervor for sampling, not too different from ours, which Loos isolates as the source for the creative crisis facing late 19th century architecture. What is interesting, though, is that the inability to create novel or even native ornament is presented by him not as a hindrance, but an opportunity. An apocalyptic phrase is uttered that would echo in the high modernist works of coming years to the effects that soon the streets of the city will glisten like white walls, like Zion, the holy city, the capital of heaven. Then fulfillment will come. Los unambiguously anticipates a rapturous transformation of life that may occur only when ornament is left behind like a chrysalis. Almost to prove his point about progress, he gestures to the repressive forces of a reactionary state. Woe to the revolutions who are in the care of the bureaucrats. This is important to remark upon because, although the Austro-Hungarian Empire was undergoing an identity crisis from which it would not recover, its disintegration was already visible in the extreme ornamentation of Vienna's new architecture. The emperor had, some decades earlier, torn down the city walls and replaced them with a monumental boulevard, the Ringstrasse which somehow made the capital even more insular than it had been before. On the site of an earlier assassination attempt where the emperor had been stabbed, a neo-Gothic cathedral appeared. A new parliament building was raised in the neoclassical style. The University of Vienna took after Renaissance revival, as irksome a redundancy as can be thought of. By cannibalizing history, and quilting an identity from the scraps of previous styles, the regime strove to uphold the illusion of imperial unity through pastiche. Fin de siècle Vienna was, in this sense, a Potemkin empire. It was in this context that Loos underscored how state-sponsored social initiatives could work like collectors, dare we say, like literal garbage collectors, by doting strictly on the ornamental aspects of the local cultures they were trying to conserve. In a wrong-headed effort to make the myriad ethnicities in Austria-Hungary feel united as an empire, the state mandated the preservation of traditional craft practices, one of which was the weaving of foot rags. And so, a modern state preoccupied with cultural sensitivity was, perversely, enforcing that ethnic minorities continue to wear hand-woven rags on their feet rather than cheap, comfortable, factory-made shoes. In a very vital way, Los was noting how the mania for sampling had inflated the role and the presence of ornament to the point in which it started to starve people of real substance. If I want to eat a piece of gingerbread, I choose one that is quite smooth and not a piece representing a heart, or a baby, or a horseman which is covered all over with ornaments. The man of the 15th century won't understand me, but all modern people will.
While Loth saw cultural evolution and progress as inevitable, the peasants will eventually wear shoes regardless of imperial policy, he thought that the relative degree to which a community or state made room for stragglers was relevant even to national security. I, perhaps, am living in 1908, but my neighbor is living in 1900, and the man across the way in 1880. It is unfortunate for a state when the culture of its inhabitants is spread over such a great period of time. The peasants of Kals are living in the 12th century, and there were ethnicities taking part in the jubilee parade of the Emperor Franz Josef who would have been considered backward even during the barbarian migrations. Happy the land that has no such stragglers and marauders. Happy America. Loos then mentions that in ages past, such as in 18th century Europe, income inequality had been increasing. Now the common man in England was getting richer, while his Austrian counterpart grew poorer. By focusing on ornament at the expense of structure and pandering to superficial cultural individuality, Austria's development was held back relative to other industrial powers, and far more serious matters of identity were left to fester. Ornament increased the cost of goods and time in labor. Loos correctly foresaw the future we already experienced, one of higher wages, cheaper goods, and shorter working hours in which ornament is separate from mass consumer products. He anticipated planned obsolescence, not through function, but through fashion. He decried those designers who praised the workshop whose furniture gets thrown away every ten years. Where they claimed that conspicuous consumption created jobs, Loos lampooned their argument by taking it to its own logical conclusion, that which six years later would apply so readily to the conflict-fueled economy of the world. Set fire to a town. Set fire to the empire. And everyone will be swimming in money and prosperity. As we know, the coming of the Great War was at first greeted with enthusiasm from the bankers and industrialists of Austria, Germany, France, Britain, and America. What emerged from the conflict was, truly, a world revolted by the gaudiness and folly of the past. The cultural stragglers ensconced in the offices of state and cheered on by ignorant jingoism in the public had allowed for a diplomatic crisis between a petty empire and a minor power to engulf all of Europe and its colonies in war. Los was not, of course, alone in sensing the approach of a transformative historic threshold. In 1888, Bismarck had famously muttered how the Great European War will come out of some damned fool thing in the Balkans. Not if. The literature of the times, that of Musil, Krauss, and Broch, pointed emphatically in the same direction. Loos made no claims to originality, 
not even on the subject of ornament. He looked to previous Art Nouveau exponents, such as Otto Eckmann and Henri van der Felde, who had already moved away from ornamenting their designs as a natural progression. He claimed that the inability of his culture to create native ornament was not the sign of something broken, but a blessing, as unseen as it was undisguised. This is how he speaks of a cobbler who showed disappointment upon being informed that he would receive 40 crowns for a plain shoe instead of the 30 that he charged for ornate wingtips. He has less work, but I have taken away all his joy. Los approved of ornament for the cobbler, the exotic or the peasant, as they did not yet belong to the realm we inhabit and could eventually find their visual joy in the sphere of art, devoting craft to the joy of solution. Relaxing the obsession with craft ornament was indeed an impulse that helped the popular arts flourish by redirecting a limited supply of creativity and resources to better ends. To put it exactly, anyone who goes to the Ninth Symphony and then sits down and designs a wallpaper pattern, is either a con man or a degenerate. Absence of ornament has brought the other arts to unsuspected heights. Beethoven's symphonies would never have been written by a man who had to walk about in silk, satin, and lace. In his own understanding of the divide between progressives and stragglers, and rightly seeing the influence that patrons wield, Loos wrote that he was preaching to the aristocrat. I mean the person who stands at the pinnacle of mankind and yet has the deepest understanding for the distress and want of those below. What would Loos say to our age of prevalent tattoos and glorified graffiti? With our yearning towards uniform uniqueness, those who stand with wealth or influence have often abdicated their responsibility to lead by example, choosing to imitate minorities and the poor out of an ideological conviction in their own lack of legitimacy. This is the inexorable affinity between a tattooed criminal and the degenerate aristocrat that we had spoken of earlier. What Loos encouraged was a sense of balance wherein the aristocracy would lead its culture by example without forcing the public to follow. The aristocrat lets them be. He knows that the hours in which they work are their holy hours. The revolutionary would go to them and say, It's all nonsense just as he would pull down the little old woman from the wayside crucifix and tell her, there is no God. The atheist among the aristocrats, on the other hand, raises his hat when he passes a church. And this tolerance, this temperate largesse that contains both the conservative and the progressive in it, is what separated Loos from other early proponents of the modernist movement, who were the type to pull down crucifixes. Los was simply here to remind us how the power of the cross predated that of the church. 
Ornament and Crime was first published in a redacted French version in 1913. Seven years later, that edition resurfaced in the charter issue of L'Esprit Nouveau, the journal of the freshly rechristened Le Corbusier, who wished to literally pull down the medieval area of downtown Paris, which he saw as the straggling of that city's past and gleaming white walls on the streetscapes would become more of a nightmare than a dream when the vast housing projects that he himself largely inspired went up in ubiquitous concrete. But the trajectory of Loos's career cast the distinction between himself and the high modernists to whom he responded in the 1924 essay Ornament and Education into sharp relief. I did not mean what some purists have carried ad absurdum, namely that ornament should be systematically and consistently eliminated. What I did mean was that where it had disappeared as a necessary consequence of human development, it could not be restored, just as people will never return to tattooing their faces. But alas, we have returned. Tattooing is back as a symptom of romanticizing otherness. Loos goes on to describe how the cultural specificity of ornament ties an object very closely to its era. Given a changing culture, ornament shortens the time in which an object will fully speak to people as a vital part of that culture. As an echo to the very past that it is meant to honor, the urn, may bear the heavy ornament befitting mortuary items. A utilitarian chamber pot, on the other hand, should be a leopard that does not change spots, since its intended and enacted use will not really vary from one age to the next. The wish for utilitarian objects to be stripped of ornament is very closely linked to the obsolescence ornament bestows on them. Objects adapted to human use tend to change slowly, if at all, in their forms of adaptation, which is why Loos never designed furniture, but simply chose pieces he felt were of a timeless shape. Humans continue to sit in mostly the same way, and so, in lieu of an obvious improvement, he would leave everything else as it is. In an impulse very similar to that which his own friend and sometime colleague Ludwig Wittgenstein would later extend to philosophy. Such was the moderate, indeed the temperate, rationale behind Loos's allegedly radical stance against ornamentation in buildings. His quarrel was not with decoration, but with its travesties. And so, if the absence of ornament allowed for the redirectioning of energy in architecture, how was this new direction expressed? Though we see a kind of innovation in non-ornamental aspects of Loos's work, he himself noted that it was not restricted to what he alone was designing. The shapes emerging were to be known as Raumplan, the development of space as an integral entity in conversation with the forms that interpenetrated it. 
Frank Lloyd Wright would be among the early self-conscious proponents of this approach in the windingly open floor plans of his prairie-style mansions. As for Loos's work, it ended up resembling a tasteful reworking of classical forms, his interiors especially showing a stunning sense of interlock. For some examples, we have posted images on the Lapsus Lima website. In recalling Keith Richards' description of a silence instrumentalized so that it might bestow depth to a piece, this early 20th century architecture is among the first crafts since classical Japanese and Chinese painting, which most of these architects admired highly, to invoke the exchange between vessel and void. Loos began his essay by speaking of the senses, and specifically of their evolution. It is not too crazy to imagine that he was anticipating awareness of a new color called depth. In many ways, his words mark off a time that started with the great cathedrals of the Middle Ages, where the Gothic style took up the cross not as the symbol of a body incarnate, but as the springboard for a bright explosion of universal space, the laws and the light of God defined on an axis and extending forever. The cathedral was a finite alignment for a world without end. As 1908 slouched towards Bethlehem, the twilight of Western culture neared a bloody dusk. The cycle that had begun with European cultural expansion in the Gothic and the Crusades was collapsing. A new sense of space as depth and interactive form within the void was being developed. And this distinction between conceptions of space marks a significant divide among what is too often thought of as a unitary modernist movement. Choosing to employ the interplay of void, or declining to do so, divided the disruptively innovative modernists from those who wished for incremental advance through the purification of earlier ideas. And what was for Loos a moment of enlightenment has become in some ways mental habit for us, though it is new enough that we have not yet fully grasped the changed color and current of the air we breathe. Two years after the initial reading of Ornament and Crime, a German architect, suspected of industrial espionage, had digested Loos's comments on the disappearance of ornament. He would effectively conspire with the captains of industry to bring leading artists and craftsmen into the streams of mass production. Much as Loos before him, this man, Hermann Mutesius, worried that industrial design was inextricably linked to matters of economic competitiveness and national security. Though Loos's Pythian pleas fell, largely, on deaf ears in his homeland, Germany was not Austria, and Mutesius's goal was nothing less than the reimagining and redesign of everything in life, from sofa pillows to city planning. And he had the industrial powers of the German Empire lined up behind him. 
Join us next week for Hermann Muthesius and his lecture to the 1912 Congress of the Deutsche Werkbund. Wo stehen wir? Where do we stand? I'm David Getson. Thank you for listening.